name is Jennifer and I am an alcoholic. I've been kept sober since December 5th of 92, and that's my miracle. And the Legacy Group in Plano, Texas is my home group. And it's an honor and a privilege to get to be here and celebrate my very favorite holiday, Thanksgiving. I mean, how can you go wrong with Thanksgiving? How can you go wrong? There's like football and food and gratitude. I mean, it's the perfect holiday. Um, and you guys have done such an amazing job with um, with this event. I mean, it was. I've, I've been sitting next to the air traffic controllers, and uh, and I want to thank everybody who had anything to do with this evening because it's just been such a gift. Um, I am also really grateful for the people in the room who have less than a year of sobriety because it was sort of looking like everybody here has 212 years. There's a guy in the back who's got a big book older than me. So um, I, am, I am here to bring hope to the newbie because I set the bar low. Um, and I, am, I, I just hope that in, in what I have to share tonight that you hear um, my gratitude for Alcoholics Anonymous and the God that I met here. I'm also a feeler, so I'm just going to tell you right now, there will be weepage and um, probably sooner rather than later. And, um, and if that's a problem for you, call your sponsor. Um, <laughs> If you did not look at the back of your whatever program, check this out. I try to hold fast to the truth that a full and thankful heart cannot entertain great conceits. When brimming with gratitude, one's heartbeat must surely result in ongoing love, the finest emotion we can ever know. That got me totally squished out, y'all. Um, because you taught me gratitude in Alcoholics Anonymous, and you taught me when I was brand new about, about gratitude. And I can remember there was a lady in, in one of my early meetings. She was one of those obnoxious rays of sunshine, and I'm new, and I'm furious, and I just want you to leave me alone so I can go drink. And, um, and she would say, I just believe that you can find gratitude in anything. And I thought, this lady is not paying attention at all. And so a couple of days later, I'm driving down the road, and all the voices in my head are having an argument at once. I call these people the, uh, the evil sock puppets because I don't want it to. Some people call it the committee, but I don't want it to sound like they are working in an official capacity. So I call them the evil sock puppets. And the evil sock puppets were holding a meeting about whether I should drink or not. They used to do that a lot when I was new. I think we should totally drink. I'm not sure. We, that, I mean, we'll have to pick up another chip. And I think it's a felony. And so um, there's all this arguing going on in my head. And all I can think of is that twerp lady in the meeting who said, I believe that you can find gratitude in anything. And I'm completely crazy. And there's all these voices in my head, and they're arguing. And I'm driving down the road thinking, where in the heck is the gratitude in this? And the answer was that they were arguing. Because there was a point in my, of time just a, a month before when one voice would say, I think we need a drink. And everybody went, meeting adjourned. And off we go. 
So um, if you're struggling and you got those voices and they're fighting in your head, that's progress, people. That is progress. Um, I'm also a little um, emotional because while we were sitting there, I saw the date on the front, and it says November 19th. And on November 19th of 19, oh, you don't have to stop me up. I'm just going to cry and sling it off. It's okay. Um, you're very sweet. Thank you. Okay, so on November 19th of um, 1992, 24 years ago, I was sitting in a jail cell. I know exactly where I was on this night. And um, and I was thinking it's all over. I got picked up on a felony DWI 24 years ago tonight. And, um, and I'm sitting in a jail cell, and things aren't going well for me, okay? Um, they haven't been going well for a while. Um, no, really, seriously, I'm just going to weep. It's, uh, I'm good. <laughs> the Kleenex committee is on it. Thank you. Okay. You're precious. Thank you. I appreciate it. Okay. Okay, so I'm, uh, I'm sitting in this jail cell, and I've gotten this felony DWI. And, you know, going to jail is nothing new for me. I started in about 16 and continued after I got sober, I went to jail because I'm an overachiever. And uh, that's a story for another time. But, um, but I'm sitting in this jail cell, and, um, and I'm a drunken preschool teacher. And, uh, and I know I'm going to lose my job because I'm now a felon. And I'm living at home because I've called off the last wedding that I'm going to schedule. Um, and, um, and I don't have any answers. I don't have any money. I have a car that's about to catch on fire, but I don't know that yet. And, um, and my friends are pretty much done with me. And I don't have anybody I can call to get me out of jail which is probably the greatest gift I've ever been given because I have a moment of clarity where I see exactly who I am and what I am and where I am and I can no longer blame anybody else for where I'm sitting that night. Um, I was three days late for my own birthday party. Um, and the funny part about that, well it's funny now, is that I asked them to throw me this birthday party. And then I didn't show up for it. And, um, and you know, I'm grateful I'm here because I can explain this and y'all will go, oh, yeah, that happens. And um, I asked them to throw me this birthday party, but then I started drinking somewhere else. And in order to get to the place where there was a party, I was going to have to stop drinking and get in a car and drive. And my problem is once I start, stopping becomes a little tricky. I didn't do the pause much, you know, I drank and passed out. Okay, I guess we're done. You know, that's how I do things. And and so I neglected to show up for my own birthday party, but I found out that some people had left some presents and had paid for some drinks for me. So I went to the bar where the party was three days late and, um, and collected all my free drinks and picked up my presents. And... Um, 
and I was on my way home, and I got pulled over. And it wasn't the most trouble I'd ever been in, and it wasn't the most afraid I'd ever been, but it was a totally different night because um, when I got pulled over, the guy said, how much have you had to drink? Now, we all know the proper answer to that, couple. <laughs> but what I said was $67 worth because I remembered how much my tab was. And, um, yeah, it was precious. And, uh, and, uh, and I said, I'll, I'll make you a deal. Uh, you know I'm drunk, and I know I'm drunk. So how about we just do that flashlight thing, and you take me to jail? And he said, okay. And, um... And we didn't have to pretend I could say the alphabet backwards or walk a straight line or do this thing. Look at that. I mean, just boom, I just nailed it. Sober, those tests are really easy. But um, drunk, they're like impossible. And uh, so he took me to jail, and, um, and, and something was different. And I didn't really know what was different until I came to my first AA meeting. And in my first AA meeting, I heard somebody say I was sick and tired of being sick and tired, and that fell right in the slot and explained what I couldn't explain before, that I was just in the spot where I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. And in that jail cell, I had a moment of clarity, and I saw myself, and for the very first time, sitting in a jail cell, I'm not thinking, what's a nice girl like me doing in a place like this? For the very first time, I am thinking, a girl like me belongs in a place like this. And the reason I belong in a place like this is that I can't swear to you, God, or anybody else that I'm not going to do it again. I have stopped trying to go 24 hours without taking a drink because I'm a miserable failure at going 24 hours without taking a drink. And I know that if they let me out, I'm going to drink again if something does not change in my world. And I don't know what it is that's got to change. And I'm sitting in that jail cell, and the only thing I can think is I've got to go back to Alcoholics Anonymous. Oh, I knew where you were. I had been on a couple of field trips, you know. Um, but I didn't take your literature or your crummy little chips. I uh, rarely made it all the way through the Lord's Prayer, because you people put your meetings at a really inconvenient time. It's like right in the middle of drinking. And... Um, and you talk slow, and, uh, and then, as if it's not bad enough, some of you people will say, does anybody have a burning desire? And my burning desire is to get the heck out of here and go back to the bar. What are you talking about? Um, but sitting in a jail cell, I made a decision that I would go to Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and uh, because when you're in jail, meetings don't seem so bad. And... Um, And I made a decision, and I said a prayer, and I asked for help, and um, and then they let me out, and I changed my mind. And um, well, first I tried to go to NAA meeting, and um, that's hard. Like when you don't really want to be sober, <laughs> going to an AA meeting is awful. Um, so I just sort of drove around an AA group, and. Um, and I practiced saying, my name is Jennifer, and I'm an alcoholic. Oh, God, no! You know, I just, ugh. 
And um, I drove around and around and around. And, um, and then I started thinking. I started thinking there are all these nice people at Alcoholics Anonymous. And I would hate to waste their time. You know, they're going to devote all this time to helping me get sober. And, um, and I'm not sure that sober is really for me. And I started remembering there was this guy I used to drink with. His name was Jimmy, and Jimmy had eight DWIs. Jimmy's pretty good drunk. But Jimmy wasn't going to meetings. Jimmy was still drinking at the bar. Now, I've got three DWIs. Jimmy's got eight. And Jimmy's still drinking at the bar. So here is a man with a real answer. So I decide, before I bother you nice people in Alcoholics Anonymous, I should probably check in with my legal advisor, Jimmy. <laughs> and maybe Jimmy's got a workable solution to this little legal problem I got going on. So I pull up at my home bar, which we will get to, you know, later. But I pull up at my home bar, and I walk in, and they sit three drinks on the bar, which is always my first order. I don't want to leave things to chance, so I order three drinks right up front. And, um, and for the very first time, I say, nope, I'm not drinking tonight. And they say, what? And um, I say, well, I'm going to be back, but I'm just here to talk to Jimmy. And, um, and after I talk to Jimmy, I'm going to straighten a few things out, and then I'll come back and we'll get back to drinking. So I sit down across from the guy I think is the worst drunk I know, and I begin to explain my dilemma with him. And he looks at me and he says, Jen, honey, I can afford to be the kind of drunk I am, but you can't afford to be the kind of drunk you are. Now, when the worst drunk you know starts talking down to you, <laughs> you're having a real bad day. Because I'm no genius, but I happen to be able to do simple math. He's got eight, I've got three, and somehow I've hit the end of the road. Well, what I learned as our conversation unfolds is that Jimmy is talking about money. It turns out that Jimmy had been paying his attorney in cocaine, and um, <laughs> I didn't happen to have any cocaine. As a matter of fact... I didn't have three rolls of nickels to pay my attorney with. And, um, and Jimmy explained that his attorney was postponing things, but eventually he'd wind up in prison and he'd be there for a really long time. And he said, but you have an opportunity, and maybe you could just go get yourself some help, Jennifer. And, um, and that was this weird moment when I'm looking across the table at the worst drunk I know, and I want to fight with him because I'm so angry at what he's just told me, but there's this little voice in my head that's me but isn't me, and it keeps saying, who would know better than Jimmy? Jimmy knows what he's talking about. The other thing that happened that night was at some point there were drinks in front of me, and at some point I drank them, but I don't remember that part. I remember looking down and seeing empty glasses in front of me and, and knowing for certain that I had drank them, but I never remembered actually drinking them, and I don't remember making a decision to drink. I remember making a decision not to. You see, on TV, when an alcoholic's going to drink, things happen. There's violins, and they go, Duh! and the hand shakes, and little beads of sweat form, and the alcoholic you could see the wheels of their mind trying to decide, should I drink, should I not drink? My experience is, oh, crap, I'm drinking. 
And I say it like it's funny now, but you guys know what I'm talking about. It gives me chills every time I talk about it because I did not make a decision to drink. I made a decision not to, and in that very moment, I was absolutely convinced with nobody having to tell me that whether I wanted to or not, I would drink again unless I got somebody to help me learn how to stay sober. And that's when I began my quest to go all the way into Alcoholics Anonymous and sit all the way down. And we're going to get back to that. I was born at a very early age on November 16th of 1966. That was three days ago. Um, I was born to a football coach and an English teacher, and they are wonderful, charming, delightful, god-awful, boring people. My parents went to work, and they went to church, and they did the right thing even when nobody was looking. They pay their taxes just as a general principle. Um, they got married on purpose. They stayed married on purpose. My mom and dad are so weird. They met, they dated, they got married, and they had sex in that order. And they, they loved me. I was loved and I was wanted and I was given absolutely everything I would ever need to be happy, healthy, and well-adjusted. And I was for like three years. Um, we have pictures. And, um, and then they brought home the resentment. And um, almost three years later, they brought home my first resentment and my longest lasting one. <laughs> and... Um, and, uh, and she's fantastic. You know, you got one of those? She's just fantastic. Um, she ruined everything. She ruined any opportunity I might have to blame my alcoholism on my upbringing because we went to the same schools, the same church. We were potty trained in the same way. But this freak went to high school and graduated. She went to college, graduated four years. Who does that? <laughs> she graduates in four years. Y'all, I'm 50 and I'm a sophomore. When my sister got out of um, college, she chose a career. She went to work for Jesus in Bulgaria. My sister was a missionary, and I was a cocktail waitress in a pool hall. We were both doing God's work in our own way. But while my sister was in Bulgaria, she met a Bulgarian man. They met, they dated, they got married, and they had sex in that order because apparently that's what you're supposed to do. I got married six years ago, seven years ago. Yeah, it was seven. And I was not a virgin. So um, one of these things just doesn't belong here. And, um, and nobody can tell me why. You know, and, and for anybody here who's new, I'm going to talk about people and places and situations and I think it's really important that I clarify. These are the props that I drank at. They are not the reason that I am an alcoholic. The reason I am an alcoholic is covered in masterly detail in a chapter called The Doctor's Opinion. I highly recommend you read that with a sponsor. Sponsors are magical when it comes to this chapter. And um, what happens when I drink is the reason I'm an alcoholic. Because I watch other people drink, that thing does not happen in them. They're pitiful. Have you watched non-alcoholics drink? Ugh, I wouldn't drink much either. If it turned out like that, I wouldn't drink much either. They turn pink, they giggle twice, they go to bed. It's awful. 
no non-alcoholic has a really good, and then I woke up and I was in Bulgaria story. They don't, they don't even drive drunk. It's so weird. Um, so anyway, um, I grew up in this family, and, and growing up, my first drug of choice was attention. <laughs> Clearly, I have not fully recovered from that. Um, because I was living from the outside in. And if you told me I was wonderful, I was wonderful. If you told me I was terrible, I was terrible. But everything came from the outside in. And I will be forever grateful to Alcoholics Anonymous because here I learned how to live from the inside out. And I learned that there's something inside of me that is more precious than anything on the outside of me ever will be. But you had to teach me that much later. So I'm living from the outside in, and, and during this time I'm trying to figure out who I am and what I'm about, and I decide I want to be a minister when I grow up. Kind of took a swerve, didn't I? And um, So I want to be a minister, but I'm also super boy crazy. I discovered boys in about third grade. They discovered me in 2007. And so my story begins with a boy. Um, this guy moved to town, and he was super sexy. He was preppy back when preppy was the thing to be. He was tanned. He was toned. He was quaffed. He had a waist. always wanted a waist. <laughs> he was preppy, and I was a Rocky Horror Picture Show when we met at church. And I wanted what he had, and I was willing to go to almost any lengths to get it. I haven't had a drink yet, but I got me some Alkalogic, and what I decide is... That we're going to fall in love, and he's going to deflower me. And if we have sex, obviously, we have to get married. It's a law. And um, now I don't tell him this plan, because um, if you tell a guy a plan, he starts to change it up. So I don't really know what I'm doing. I'm just, you know, I've seen a couple of Molly Ringwald movies. I've got some basic ideas. But I figure after a certain point, nature takes over and magical things happen. And that virginity that's been holding me back is just going to poof, be gone. So we're out on this date, and there's some Lionel Richie playing on the radio, and the moon is full, and we've just done some light shoplifting. And, um, <laughs> and we pull over, and, and I'm, I'm just about to make my big move, and... That's when he tells me he's gay. And um, <laughs> half the room laughs, half goes, oh, yeah, I know. It's the beginning of a pattern. Um, and this was the 80s. It was not a real cool time to be gay. And um, I was so self-centered that I really thought he was gay at me. You know, I spent... spent the next two years trying to convince him he wasn't that gay. <laughs> he still is. I mean, I checked. And um, he's also a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous now, so that's pretty cool. Um, but I got mad at him, and I got mad at God, and I got drunk. And I'm so dramatic, my first drink was an act of defiance against the Lord because I didn't get what I wanted. You know, if being good doesn't get you what you want, let's try bad. And so um, I had these two bottles of wine. Somebody had given me two bottles of wine because I had become fascinated with drinking. I was watching my friends drink. They were older. They were in college. 
And I noticed that the nerds kind of turned cool when they drank. And I'm like, I'm all personality, and if this will give me more personality, I could take on the world. And so I start asking 5,000 questions about drinking because Google did not exist yet. And I like to do research. And finally, this friend of mine gave me two bottles of, of wine, a bottle of Real Sangria and a bottle of Boone's Farm Tickle Pink, and said, for the love of God, go get drunk. And so I did. It was the night before a church trip, and we were at Yolanda's house, and me and my friend Susie started drinking. Now, my, i got to tell you about my friend Susie because she was wonderful. She's still my friend today, and she's teeny, and she's tiny, and she's drill teamy. Yay! She's the kind of girl who does the splits for just no reason. Woohoo! I don't know if you can tell, but I've done a little writing about girls like Susie. Because um, it seemed to me like girls like Susie could say, I'm cold. And people would leap over furniture to change the thermostat and grab blankets. Jennifer, chop wood. Susie's cold. So I've got this moral dilemma because I love Susie. Susie, I swear she's still my friend today. Um, she lives right down the street from me, and she is still just as precious as she has ever been. But I'm desperately jealous of this Susie girl, and I want to be better than her at something. You know, I bought the makeup that they bought, and at the end of the day, I look like an unmade bed, and they look like Barbie dolls, you know? I'm always judging my insides by your outsides, and, and inside of me beats the heart of Barbie, but my body's made by Tonka. And so I've got this envy problem, and I love her and I hate her all at the same time, and, and we're going to get drunk together, and I've just made one decision, and the decision is I'm going to be better at drinking than Susie. And I was, like right away, and I probably still am, because she's pitiful. Two beers, and we got to help her to the car. You know, it's just, ugh. she's like bric-a-brac. Um, but anyway, Susie and I start out closet drinkers. We sit on the floor of a closet, and we've got these two bottles of wine. And we begin to drink them, and it tasted like nail polish remover. Because wine that is not seen in a grape is not delicious. And it goes down and it immediately shoots back up because that's what your body does when nasty stuff comes in it. It shoots it back up. And we go, no, and we mush it back down. And so I take another swig and it shoots back up and it burns my nasal hairs and I mush it back down because I'm not going to puke first. I'm absolutely certain I'm going to puke, but I'm not going to puke before Susie. And we begin to drink. And... um and here's the weird thing. Both of us are sitting on the same floor drinking the same thing, and if you ask Susie about that night, because I have, she talks about the most negative stuff. She talks about vomit. She talks about, well, she cut her hand, or there was some glass or something. She talks about who all got mad at us and how sick she was the next day and how awful she felt, like consequences. That's what Susie remembers about that night. That is why Susie is at home sitting on her couch watching TV with her husband tonight. And I'm in an A&A &A meeting. 
Because what I remember about that night was magical. I can tell you how big my hair was, and I can tell you about the shoulder pads in my sweater. I can tell you about how pointy the shoes were and how skinny the belts were. I can tell you exactly how that stuff smelled and how it tasted. I can tell you that when I stood up, I learned that if you were drinking in a two-story house and you were 16 years old, while you are drinking, the house turns into a ship. <laughs> because I am standing flat-footed, and all of a sudden, I begin to lose my balance and I smash my face into the back of the closet door, and that is when the magic of alcohol begins to work for me. Because I am intense and I am sensitive and I am intensely sensitive. I'm always jealous of people who can have one feeling at a time because I do feeling casseroles. I feel everything. I feel changes in barometric pressure and it's all about me. And suddenly I've put a bottle and a half of wine in my mouth. And not only do I not have to feel my feelings, I don't have to feel my face. It is glorious. I would like a lifetime membership to that. And that night we laughed and we talked and we wet our pants and we puked. It was the best night of my life. And what I did not know was this was going to be the drunk I would be trying to get back to for the next 10 years of daily drinking. This really was the best my drinking was ever gonna be because when I was drinking, things were great and getting better. Now that night, we laughed, we talked, we wet our pants and we puked. And the next morning we got up, we went downstairs and we were at a Hispanic girl's house. It was a special morning, so our mother made huevos rancheros. So I puked again. And then I got on a bus to go sing for Jesus. And, um, and I loved both of those things, and I was both of those things. And early in my drinking, there was a lot of tug-of-war about that. Because I loved how it felt to sing with the Jesus freaks. But I loved how it felt to be sneaking off to the parking lot and meeting the boys with the beers. And my, it made my twitch go away. That was my problem. I'd go to church, and I'd get that kumbaya, warm, fuzzy feeling. But by Tuesday... My twitch started coming back. And I could not recall with sufficient force that, that hymn or that sermon or that Bible verse that had given me so much comfort on Sunday morning. But let me tell you how powerful alcohol is in my life. I don't even have to drink it to feel the effects. I don't even have to drink alcohol to feel the effects. All I have to do is plan my next drunk and I get a sense of ease and comfort. Things are great and getting better. Everything's going to be okay because I'm going to get to get drunk soon. That's why I'm in an A&A meeting tonight. So I, uh, I drank through high school, and um, I was the president of pretty much anything they would let me be the president of. I did not want to be on your crappy committee. I wanted to run things. Me and the gay boyfriend stayed girlfriend and boyfriend because there wasn't a long line for me. And... Uh, He's a really good dancer that looked good in pictures. So um, me and the gay boyfriend went to jail um, my junior year of high school for stealing a street sign. And when I say a street sign, I don't mean a street sign. I mean a street sign. It was hanging out the back of my dad's car. I was driving. It took me two years of sobriety to realize this was an alcohol-related offense. Because... I drove myself to the airport. I probably passed 600 signs. At no point did I swerve off the road to get one. But apparently on 12 California coolers, dude, we need a sign. 
And so we get this sign, we put it in the back of the car, and then we promptly forget about it. For those of you who don't know, street signs are reflective. They're not real hard to spot, especially if your trunk's open and one's hanging out. But Dumb and Dumber have kind of forgot they're there. But we do see the police car, and I begin to pull over. My gay boyfriend bursts into tears because he's peed in a park, and he thinks it's a felony. So I go to jail on a Class B misdemeanor theft over $20, and he's on one side of the cell block, and I'm on the other, and I'm doing that real pretty crying, that <laughs> For those of you who have not had the pleasure, jail echoes. Like, it's loud in there. And, um, and the boyfriend says the dumbest thing I've ever heard. He says, tell your mom and dad it's my fault. You can bet on that, buddy. You do not have to tell a girl like me to blame you. As soon as I was talking, I was blaming. As soon as I had pockets, I was stealing. And so um, I am pretty sure that when my mom and dad came to pick me up, I told them some fantastic story about how he threatened to kill me if we didn't steal that sign. And I'm so grateful for an inventory in Alcoholics Anonymous that showed me that he had neither the brains nor the maracas to come up with this brilliant plan. This had me written all over it. And I only tell you that story to tell you this when I get bailed out of jail. I'm a little fritzed out from my prison experience. And I got to get ready for church. And um, don't get ahead of me here. So I wind up with a curling iron burn all the way across my forehead, which begins to blister. So I'm starting to look like Cro-Magnon Man as the morning goes on. And that morning, I'm the youth speaker at the First Methodist Church. <laughs> and God laughed and laughed and laughed. Um, it's funny now, but it sure wasn't funny then. I have just been bailed out of jail, and I truly, in my heart of hearts, believe I am the only person at the whole First Methodist Church who has ever gone to jail, ever. Now, I know better now, because because I have sponsored some of them. But, um, but at that time, I and I'm pretty sure that's the day I stopped looking in the, the world in the eye. And it's really important for me to clarify, that has nothing to do with them. I am still a member of that church today, and when I'm home, I go to that church. And those people carry a message of love and hope to me. They always have. I know that's not everybody's story, but it's mine. Some of those people at that church have heard bits and pieces of my story. Some of them have heard all of it. And they have always carried a message of love and hope to me. So it wasn't them that was different. It was me. Because I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt I was going to drink again. Because alcohol did for me what I couldn't do for myself. And so I drank. I went towards college. You've already heard how well that went. Swimmingly. Now, I took a test that said I was going to be great at college. But apparently that test assumed that I might show up for class. And, um... Showing up for class was really hard for me. Um, when I first got there, I was suicidal because I didn't know anybody, and I didn't know how to meet people, and I certainly wasn't humble enough to ask. I just sort of always expected people to come to me. And when that didn't happen, I had my little earphones on and my little schedule and my little backpack, and I'm just wandering around, and I don't know where I'm going, and I don't know what I'm doing, and I'm not going to ask any questions. And that will get you real crazy real quick. But the good news was I, uh, the drinking age was 19, and I turned 19 in November, and me and my friend Slaps, we went to the beer barn, we drove through backwards, because we don't, I don't ask questions. And um, 
We had our little IDs and we bought some beer so that we could drink, so that we could go out drinking. If you have to drink in preparation to go drinking, you may be an alcoholic. Because um, I found that I have to drink to have the courage to walk in the bar. It's a crazy thing right there. So me and my friend Slap sit outside the bar and drink beer so we have enough courage to walk in the bar to order beer. And that night I met him. He was magical. He had long hair and a long beard, and he didn't like shoes. And his friends called him humongous, which I found fascinating. I still don't know why. But I began to drink with humongous, and, and we put on our little beer goggles, and we fell into weird Humongous had a couple of things going for him. He had no job and no car. Now, for some girls, that might go on the con side of the list. But I have a special place in my heart for a man with no job and no car. This is kind of the Alanonic part of my story. Men tend to wander off on me. So if you date, and please know I'm talking about alka-dating, if you date a man with no job and no car, you can drop him off somewhere, and when you come back later, he's still there. <laughs> or he's easy to track because he's on foot, and he looks a little like Sasquatch. So by the end of the night, we put his bicycle in the back of my car. I really wish I was making that up. And we headed off to the commune. Kind of wish I was making that part up, too. And in 24 hours, I went from being some chick from the suburbs who had rarely ridden a bus to some chick at the hippie place where I have friends who live on buses. In 24 hours, I become a hippie chick, which is really easy to do. You just kind of give up hygiene and start wearing his clothes. And I liked having a boyfriend. I, I, I won't talk much about my drug use. I'm going to talk a minute about his. Um, he and his friends like to trip on acid, and um, which is interesting because um, they're not like us. Um, they get a plan, and then they do the drugs. Like they would build a bonfire and hire a band and synchronize a sundial and procure all the stuff, and then they would get messed up. Alcoholics drink and then we go, we need a plan. <laughs> and we start making a plan, and we have no equipment with which to make a plan. So these guys are doing all their planning on the front end, and, um, and they gave me a job at their parties. I had two responsibilities I had to make sure that they didn't run into the fire or touch sharp things. And I love this job because what it allowed me to do was sit on the cooler and drink beer the way that I like to drink beer. And only in working a first step with a sponsor did I discover what my real attraction was to these people. You see, I'm kind of indoorsy. I like air conditioning and snacks. And these people want to go see the sea turtles, mate. And they're reading Nietzsche and they sweat a lot. And, um, and they're, they like to do all kinds of stuff outside. 
But they weren't the kind of people who were going to say, Jennifer, we're concerned about your drinking. They were off naked in a field playing tambourines. They were waiting for the mothership to come. They were not monitoring my drinking. And so I love these people. I also liked having a boyfriend, so I got five or six more. I mean, it's not like Humongous was super focused. And um, there were different shapes, different sizes, different nationalities. We are the world. I was an equal opportunity kind of gal. And just because this is AA and I'm supposed to be honest, um, just because I refer to someone as my boyfriend does not mean he ever thought of me as his girlfriend. <laughs> Alcoholic women sort of have a sliding scale of relationships. <laughs> and I have been in long-term relationships with men who do not know I exist. But I began to date, again, Alka dating, um, a lot of different guys. And, and all I did was I just put on costumes and became who I thought they wanted me to be. And um, I, didn't, I didn't care if we went to the dance and I didn't care if we saw a movie. What I cared about was, do we get to drink? And if you will get me drunk, I'm willing to do almost anything after that. But if you come between me and the next drink, you are disposable. Anything that comes between me and the next drink is disposable. Fast forward, I, I flunk out of school, which is shocking to me. Nobody else was surprised. I was flabbergasted. <laughs> and I, that's when I made my big geographic. I put all my stuff in a truck. I drove over a bridge and a lake, and it's a whole new world. I'm one zip code away, and I'm going to start a new life. I have nine hours of college credit under my belt. I'm pretty much ready to take on anything. I haven't unpacked a box, and I've got to change my life, so I'm going to need new hair. I can tell this hippie look is not going to work in the town I've moved to because I'm driving down Main Street, and I see a life-size orange horse. And that's when I decide I'm going to be Patsy Cline. <laughs> oh, it was bad, y'all. I flip into the first hairdresser shop I can find. I sit down in the chair, and I say, tweezle me up some cowgirl hair. Oh, boy. I start talking like Reba McIntyre immediately. And... Um, this was the 80s. Everybody was getting perms. Men, women, dogs, chickens, everybody got a perm. There are bald men in this room tonight who once upon a time had a perm. So I'm getting my perm, and this girl puts three perm rods in my hair, and she says this magic thing. She says, hey, you party, don't you? Now, I've been hanging out with those hippies, so I know it's my aura. I had no idea that beer came out your pores. I'm not terribly self-aware. Um, but she offered me a cold beer, and we got drunk and did my hair. And, uh, yeah, this is going to turn out exactly as bad as you think it is. Um, by the time she gets done with the perm, there's a shrubbery sitting on top of my head. It is huge. And we are now really buzzed, and that's when she grabs the scissors. Yeah, don't get ahead of me. So what I wind up with is an asymmetric haircut. I have long hair on this side and short hair on this side. Homegirl twirls me around. There's three of me in the mirror. And we've all got bad hair. She's standing behind me bobbing and weaving, and this is a direct quote. Nobody in town has this hair. I'm looking in the mirror thinking, nobody in town wants this hair. 
But then she said the magic word. She said, you know, go honky-tonkin', and I did. Now, I have neither honked nor have I tonked, but I go to the place with the big orange horse. I get me some hot pink ropers and a belt buckle the size of my head, and I wind up at a place called the Moonlighter, and Peppa is twirling me, and everything is magical. I walked in that bar, and every head turned. It was See, y'all are quicker than me. It took me almost 10 years of sobriety to realize my lopsided hair might have had something to do with that. Every head turned. But I'm going to tell you, I, I go to this honky-tonk bar, and they treat me like the hillbilly homecoming queen. I mean, they say romantic things to me like, sit on my lap, and I'll buy you a burr. And I do. Now, here's the truth of the matter. I'm 20 years old. I'm a full-grown alcoholic, and I'm eager to please and so I'm very popular because those men are old. They're like 40, 50, 60, 80. Um, I'm not swimming in self-esteem, so I like those little dive bars where there's only three women in there and one of the women's name is Meemaw. Because i got to know I can get the gold, the silver, or the bronze. And... Um, I'm just telling you that the bronze at the Moonlighter does not come with stock parts. I've always felt like alcoholic women should get patches like the Girl Scouts. And um, like if you wake up in the morning and the guy you're with has fewer limbs than you remember him having the night before, you get a patch. I wish I was making that up. If you have ever used the back of a belt as a name tag. Morning, Frank. You get a patch. If you've ever run into a convenience store to look at the newspaper to figure out where in the heck you are, you get a patch. And that stuff's funny now, but it got a little scary back in the day. Because I walked around comforting myself with the idea that maybe I got a brain tumor. <laughs> and the way my life was going down, that would have been good news. Because things start happening to me that I can no longer explain. I can remember my dad. I, I was so crazy. I didn't even hide this stuff. Like, I called my dad because I got three flats on the same car at the same time, which is a stumper. <laughs> when you just got one spare and it's flat too. So I call my dad and man, he's walking around that car and the vein in his forehead is, you can see his heartbeat in it, you know, and he's just, rah, rah. he's just speaking in tongues. And uh, how can you do it? You know, and he doesn't want to hear the real answer because the real answer is dad, there's curbs on both sides. Come on, buddy. And he keeps asking me these questions like, how many times do you intend on doing this? I didn't intend it today. But alcoholics, man, those people on the outside of our lives, it looks to them like we wake up in the morning and go, okay, what should I screw up now? Haven't wrecked a car in three weeks. Okay, wrecking a car, probably going to go to jail. Gonna need to um, have a fight in the middle of the apartment complex about three in the morning. Share it with the neighbors. 
I used to love that. I used to fall in love frequently, and then I would have to fight outside so everybody knew how much we loved each other. <laughs> used to say, we have a love so big, we got to take it outside. And uh, mm, it was a glamorous life, but somebody had to live it. Uh, gradually, things got worse. There were jobs and no jobs, men and no men, utilities and no utilities. Um, I never drank alone and I never drank at home. And the reason was that when I was 19 years old, one of my high school friends asphyxiated on his own vomit. He fell asleep on his back and he never woke up again. And I went to that funeral and it's the last funeral I went to until I joined Alcoholics Anonymous. And because I sat in that funeral and I watched people who were broken because of the tragedy of his death. And I never verbalized it, and I could never explain to anybody why I didn't drink alone and I didn't drink at home. But it was because I knew I was that kind of drunk. And so what that meant was I drank in bars, and then I went home with anybody who would take me home. I would turn my will and my life over to the care of anybody who would have it. And some things began to happen, and it was a big deal the first time it happened and a pretty big deal the second time it happened. And by the third time it happened, it was just the way my life was going to be. It put the dirty on me that soap doesn't wash off. It creates that guilt and that shame that, that keeps one from having to look in the mirror. But it's also one of the reasons I'm absolutely convinced that I am an alcoholic. You see, I bought the book Alcoholics Anonymous before I came to you. I bought it at half price books because I wasn't willing to spend the whole three and a half dollars that the book cost. Because I didn't think it was possible for a girl like me to quit drinking. I kind of thought of AA like Weight Watchers. I don't know if you can tell, but I've joined Weight Watchers more than once. I'm not a lifetime member. And I kind of figured AA was like Weight Watchers, that just for me group, for people who need to lose more than 100 pounds, it's not a real happy place. You sit around and tell about how you hide Twinkies in the back of the toilet and stuff. And I figured that's kind of what AA was going to be like. But I'm reading this big book by myself, and one of the things that it says in that book, one of the things that I underlined before I'd ever come to you, was a part in the book that says, with a sufficient reason, a heavy drinker can stop or moderate. And I had had some sufficient reasons. I had had some sufficient reasons for a heavy drinker to stop or moderate, but for me, they were reasons to keep on drinking. The book um, uses the term oblivion over and over and over again as it describes our drinking. And it's the first word I ever looked up when I was reading the big book. And the definition I found for oblivion is to seek to forget or to be forgotten. And that's what I'm drinking for. I'm drinking to forget or to be forgotten. I was engaged seven times but never married because I'm not really a closer. Even in a blackout, men can remember fight or flight, and um, I need for you to understand, both, we fought and then they flew. And, um, and most of them went into the armed services. And uh, I know, it was weird. There's a pattern there. They went to the Army, Navy, Air Force, Salvation Army, someplace. Um, and, uh, and only when I did an inventory with a sponsor did we learn why. Because if I can't have him, I'm going to make sure nobody else wants you. And because I am abusive to the people I think I love. I am abusive. When I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, I would talk about how, how he hit me. There were men who hit me. 
And I'm so grateful to the women in Alcoholics Anonymous who got real about themselves so that I could get real about myself. Because if, if they hadn't, I'd still be telling myself that story and I'd probably be drinking tonight. Because you see, it's real important for me to tell you about the 30 minutes before he hit me. He was passed out. I was awake. Me and the evil sock puppets were talking about our relationship. We decided he needed to hear some of what we had to say. And I would get him up against the wall, and I would put my fingernails in his chest, and I would twist, and I would scream, you want to hit me, you want to hit me, you want to hit me, don't you? And if you say it long enough and loud enough, they will take suggestions. But I never want to forget that the abuse in my home was because of me. I never want to forget that I was the person who would not stop until it got to that place because I drank so I would never have to feel anything bad and I couldn't feel anything good either. And so everything had to be turned up to 15 for me to even feel it. And we would chase each other around the block. It was awful. And I thought that was love. And then on November 19th of 1992, I experienced a moment of grace sitting in a jail cell, and something changed. On December 4th of 1992, I stopped driving around that AA group, and I made a deal with God in the parking lot that I would stay for one meeting. And if I heard something I could hang on to, I would go back for one more. I wasn't super humble, but God can work with that much willingness. I came in, and the group was long, and it was skinny, and everybody sat at that end, and the door was down there. Guess where I sat? Right next to the door. That's where the newbie sits. Because you just never know when the voice in your head is going to say, we got to go, beep, you know. (laughs) So I'm sitting right by that door, and you know where everybody else sits? Way down here. And um, and they're just about to start the meeting, and everybody's sitting down here, and they say, hey, hey, there's an empty seat. Why don't you come sit here? And, y'all, I can't prove it, but I'm pretty sure my recovery began because I got out of that seat by the door, and I moved into the circle of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I haven't had a drink since. And I really, truly believe with my whole heart that when I got out of the chair I wanted to be be in and sat with you in the circle of Alcoholics Anonymous, I joined AA. And I'm sitting in that circle, and you turn out the lights, and you light the candles, and I know I'm in a cult. (laughs) But I've got nowhere else to go. And you all get so excited when you got a newbie. Man, you get excited. Man, it was like, woo, fresh meat. And, um... But here's the thing. Sometimes we get so excited about a newcomer, we forget they do not know what the hell we are talking about. I'm sitting there like my life depends on it because I believe it does. And these people are talking about sponsors and the phenomenon of craving and the three legacies. And I'm like, wah, 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 wah. What are they talking about? They're talking about a big book. What the heck is a big book? I bought Alcoholics Anonymous at half price. Where's the big book? And finally, one of my greatest teachers began to share. His name was Gene, and he had on a camo fishing cap, and he had a Duck Dynasty beard, and I believed Gene had done some drinking. I was not sure about the rest of you. The rest of you look like you drank milk. But Gene, Gene was a guy I trusted, and what Gene said was, I didn't know I was an alcoholic. Hell, I just thought I was thirsty. (laughs) And I am crying uncontrollably, and I think, me too, Gene. 
And it would have been profound if he had stopped there, but he went on to say, and my problem is, the more I drink, the thirstier I get, and that begins with the very first drink. The more I drink, the thirstier I get, it begins with the very first drink. And it felt like a lightning bolt came through the ceiling of the Plano group and zapped me right in my chair because I had been doing a daily experiment to try and figure out what Jean just explained in two sentences. The more I drink, the thirstier I get, and it begins with the very first drink. You see, I'm a bar drinker, and I drank in a bar that was right across the street from a factory. Three shifts of men would come through during my evening of cocktails. And I would watch them, and some guys go to bars with watches on. I don't even have a watch on now, which I'm sure is making you twitch. But they go into a bar with a watch, and they go, oh, look at the time. And then they do the weirdest thing. They leave because the watch told them to. <laughs> so they'll have one drink, maybe two, a, a kamikaze on their birthday, and then go, oh, look at the time. Mama's got dinner waiting on me. I've got to go. And they would get up and go, and I would think, why would you do that? We have pretzels here. <laughs> why would you do that? Some other mook would have one drink, maybe two. He'd look at his watch, and he'd say, oh, look at the time. The game's about to start. And that's when I would turn into the flight attendant. We have TVs here, here, and here. <laughs> why would you do that? But soon my question changed from why would you do that to how do you do that? Because I keep trying all these different methods so that I will stop doing what I'm doing and start doing what you're doing, and I can't seem to do it, and I can't figure out why. And in, in a very simple way, Jean began to explain what I learned later was the phenomenon of craving. The more I drink, the thirstier I get. It begins with the very first drink. And I wanted what that man had, and I, I was willing to go to any lengths to get it. I wanted to learn how to not pick up that first drink so that I wouldn't have all the ones that followed it. At the end of the meeting, they asked me if I'd like to share, and I haven't shut up since. <laughs> in that meeting, um, it seemed like everybody in the room was an ANDA. And I believe very strongly in our primary purpose um, for one simple reason. When I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, I did not believe I was an ANDA. Today, I believe I qualify for at least 12 12-step programs. But at that time, I only knew of two. And the other one, um, I had done drugs for a period of time. Some DEA agents showed up at my apartment and told me what would happen if they ever caught me in the place where they had seen my car again. And in 24 hours, I was clean. I did not need 12 steps. I did not need a sponsor. I did not need a third step prayer, nothing. I was clean in 24 hours, and I never touched that stuff again. So I did not believe I qualified for the other program. So I'm sitting in this meeting thinking i got to be an ANDA. So when I introduce myself, I say, my name is Jennifer, and I'm a thief, a whore, and a liar. <laughs> oh, my name is Jennifer. I'm an alcoholic, and I'm a thief, a whore, and a liar. Sorry. I, I did say the alcoholic thing. I'd been practicing that for weeks. Um, I didn't know that when you said alcoholic, you pretty much had the rest of that covered. You do not need, you do not need to be that specific. Um, but I told him the way I'd been dying one day at a time, and I told him some of the things that I was ashamed of. And the thing I told him I was most ashamed of was that I knew I would never get or stay sober by myself because I'd had that situation in the bar where I drank not meaning to drink. And those tacky people smiled and nodded. 
You see, I'd read that book by myself, and it didn't have a lot of good news when I read it. It said that the only solution you guys have to suggest is absolute abstinence. What? I wrote that in a margin with big question marks because I was like, we got to talk about this absolute what? And, um, and at the end of the meeting, they gave me a desire chip and they gave me some hugs. And I used to say they asked me to go to Denny's. I now know they told me to go to Denny's. You do not ask a newbie, would you like to anything? Because we're twitchy. And we don't know what you're going to do to us, you know. And so if they had asked me, I would have said, oh, my God, I have got a meeting in the morning. And uh, I would have made something up because I didn't know what you were going to do to me. But when they said, you got to go to Denny's, I went to Denny's. And I can remember very distinctly as I was driving to Denny's thinking, this must be where you fill out the paperwork. <laughs> you know, to join AA. Um, I haven't filled out my paperwork, by the way. Um, but I do consider Denny's like um, AA orientation because I learned some things. I learned that you laugh at things that are not funny. I learned that you share things you should not share. I learned that you have no volume control. And I don't know why they call us anonymous because you say stuff like, isn't that just like an alcoholic? <laughs> And I am underneath a menu singing Kumbaya thinking, oh, my God. Because I don't know that if you're at Denny's at 2 in the morning, you're either a member of AA or a future member of AA. <laughs> There's nothing to worry about. Or a square dancer. We've got these random square dancers that show up really late. But anyway, um, I watch you at Denny's, and I'm still crying, and I'm still miserable. Oh, I kind of forgot to tell you what I looked like. I had some boy sweats. Um, short hair, a ball cap, um, no makeup. I, uh, I look like an it. And, and to be fair, um, I thought I was a lesbian that didn't like women. So there's a lot of confusion going on. Um, we got that straightened out with some inventory work. Um, but uh, but I, I went to Denny's, and I'm with these people, and... And I, I start falling in love with you. I don't mean to. I don't want to. I have no desire to be a member with a bunch of people who have to go, Hi, Mary, every time somebody says her name. But y'all are freaking fun, you know? And, um, and you seem to really care about me, and I have nothing to give you. And you care. And it's so weird. I walk into my next meeting. I did what you told me to do because you were so nice to me at Denny's that I went home and I said a prayer. And I hadn't prayed in a long, long time. And I got up the next morning and I said a prayer. And I certainly hadn't prayed two times in a long, long time. And I went to work. And as soon as I got off work, I went to a meeting because that's what you told me to do. And I walked through the door. And this guy named Danny walked up to me and he said, um, hey, is your name Jennifer? And I said, why? What have you heard? <laughs> and he said, are you Jennifer? And I said, yeah. And he said, did you drink today? And I said, no. And he said, welcome to your second day of sobriety. And he set the hook. He set the hook. The big deal was not that he knew it was my second day of sobriety. The big deal was that he knew my name. He remembered my name. I've been going home with people who couldn't remember my name, but the people in AA did. 
And I kept coming back because you were spoon-feeding me, God. I went to meeting after meeting after meeting because before I had a God of my understanding, I had you. I had your stories. And you fed me, God, in every meeting. And you were better than anything on TV, man. You just got to come back. You got to see what's going on. I went to meetings because there was so much drama. I had to see if... I had to see if Chris and Richard were breaking up. I had to find out if, you know, Jeff got a job. I mean, there was all kinds of stuff going on. In my first year, two people died drunk and two people died sober, and I went to all those funerals because y'all are weird. You're like, we go to funerals. I'm like, I don't know him. Doesn't matter. Come on. And I got to see the difference. I got to see the difference. That One of the guys that died in my first year, his name was Melvin, and, and we had a smoking group. Everybody had a smoking group back in the day. You'd open up the door and just blows the smoke, and Melvin's got an oxygen tank. And here he goes into this god-awful meeting with all the smoke. And I was just bold back then. I wanted to know everything because I, I just, you people were fascinating to me. I couldn't figure you out. And I sit down next to Melvin, and I say, wait a minute, Melvin, so you're telling me you've got stage four cancer, and you're still coming to AA? He said, yep. And I said, look, we go to AA like to stay alive, and you're dying, dude. Don't you get to drink now? Which is a valid question. A newcomer wants to know stuff like this. Isn't that you get out of jail free if you're going to croak anyway? Might as well have a shot. And Melvin said, I found the best life I've ever found in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I want to be here for as long as I can be here until it's time for me to go to the, to the big meaning in the sky. Because I want to show you how grateful I am for the life you gave me in these rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And when Melvin couldn't go to meetings anymore, we took meetings to him. And he would be in and out of consciousness, but when we would say, Melvin, it's your turn to share, he would share. And his favorite step was the second step, and he said that he always asked God to take God to take Melvin wherever he was going that day. And I've always remembered that. That instead of asking God to go with Melvin, Melvin said, God, take me where you're going. And I've always loved that. And I went to meeting after meeting after meeting, and I got a sponsor because I thought you had to. I mean, these women will peck you to death. <laughs> get a sponsor, get a sponsor, you gotta get a sponsor. Come to the women's meeting, come to the women's meeting. Packs and herds of women. I don't even like you one-on-one. -on -one. What do I need with a gaggle of you? It just sucked me in, and I go to the women's meeting, and I stalk a sponsor. Because I was told that this lady in my first meeting said the first time I saw my sponsor, I knew. Now, this is all the information I have. So I'm looking super butch, and I'm staring women down in meetings. Looking for the glow. And... Um, I'm sitting in the women's meeting, and this woman shares, and she talks like a BB in a can. Man, she is bouncing all over the place, a little bit like I am. And, uh, and I mean, I can't hardly wait for the Lord's Prayer to be over. I'm leaping over people. I go, I loved everything you had to share. Will you be my sponsor? She said, yes. I said, how long have you been sober? She said, three days. <laughs> I said, I've been sober three weeks. I think I should be your sponsor. So then I go back to the Denny's recovery unit and I ask some more questions and, and they tell me to find someone who has what I want and ask them to teach me to do what they did. And, and my first sponsor I chose because I was looking for a nice lady who wouldn't go camping. 
I heard somebody in a meeting share that they did their fifth step on a camping trip, and I thought we all did our fifth step on a camping trip. <laughs> so I went up to a lady who, um, who laughed really loud, and she was big. She was about my size. And she always wore her makeup. And she had pretty clothes. And she had a laugh that shook the walls. And she called me precious. And I hadn't been precious in a really long time. And I asked her if she would be my sponsor, and she said yes. And uh, what I didn't know was that she had multiple years of sobriety, and she'd never worked all 12 steps. But you know what? She taught me how to do the steps that she knew how to do. And she gave me things to do in Alcoholics Anonymous so that I was busy. She made me go get Janet from another planet and bring her to meetings, which is a very long story. <laughs> Janet had had electroshock therapy, and she was something else. It was like herding cats getting her in the car, and she would ask me the same question 18 times on the way to our two-block-away meeting. How old are you? 26. How old are you? I'm 26. How old are you? I'm older now, Janet. And uh, Janet would bring these giant bags of stuff to the meeting, and it was like Mary Poppins. She would bring all this stuff out during the meeting, and you people would just go on about your business. I'm like, somebody needs to help Janet. Because she has lost her mind. <laughs> Fruit cups and wigs and all kinds of crap coming out of this bag. I'm just saying, Janet, here's how I know y'all are crazy. Janet shaved her legs in a meeting. Wait for it. With shaving cream. And you people just went on with the meeting. And I got to drive her home. And then I'd go back to the group to detox from my time with Janet, and the phone would ring. Just got back. And they'd say, Jennifer, it's for you. And it would be Janet saying, I need a ride to the next meeting because she couldn't remember that she was just at a meeting. And I would go get her. But Janet was one of my greatest teachers because my sponsor had told me that I had a humongous ego. And I knew she had me mixed up with somebody else because I was low self-esteem. I was not big ego. And, um, but I didn't want to embarrass my sponsor. So um, I'm driving Janet back and forth to these meetings, and I've tried. I've called my sponsor crying, saying, I hate Janet. Please don't make me take Please make Debbie take Janet to the meeting. And what are you doing? Go get Janet. And... Um, so I go get Janet, and on the way home, I begin to talk to Janet, because I finally figure out Janet is with me, because I'm supposed to help Janet. Duh! And so I start to 12-step Janet, and um, don't get ahead of me. So I'm sitting in the car, I say, Janet, I got an idea. I think you should sit down during the meetings, like the whole meeting. Dare to dream. And... Um, my sponsor told me I don't have to listen to everybody, but I need to look at their eyeballs when they share. You could try that. Look at their eyeballs when they share, even if you're not listening. And maybe if you looked at their eyeballs when they shared, maybe you'd see that thing, and you could ask somebody to be your sponsor. And that sponsor might could take you through some steps. Who knows, Janet? Anything's possible. And I'm watching, and the lights in Janet's eyes come on. And I get all kinds of excited, and a pattern begins because I keep talking until the light goes out. But um, 
I'm explaining all this stuff to Janet, and she says, Jennifer, i got a question for you. I think this is the moment. I've got my first minion. And she says, Jennifer, what I want to know is how old are you? And I'm watching Janet get out of the car, and I know she's going inside to call me to come back and get her. And I start laughing, and I start crying, and I am, I'm, this is not a joke, I am banging my head on the steering wheel. And about the third time I hit my head on the steering wheel, it clicks. I have a huge ego, because I think Janet needs to change for me to be okay. And what Alcoholics Anonymous is all about is 12 steps so that I can change, so that everybody else can be whoever and whatever they are. Janet is my greatest teacher in Alcoholics Anonymous because people like Janet bring me back to the steps day after day after day, and they show me ways in which I need to narrow my path and focus on my God and be a better channel of his love and his power and his way of life. He show it, people like Janet show me the ways in which I'm blocking God's light. And so every day I do the very best that I know how to do to connect to that power and to share his light with you. What I'm like today is I'm a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and last year has been crazy. Um, seven years ago, I married a guy I met in high school. He was a real nice guy, so I ran him off as often as possible, and he just kept coming back. And uh, right around the time I was 41, um, he emailed me. Uh, he was living in Colorado, and he asked if he could take me to dinner. Now, I date guys who live with their moms, and... Um, maybe sleep on a race car bed. They may or may not, may or may not have a driver's license. I like them fixer-uppers. Um, I have a zero success rate with the fixing up, by the way. But, um, but here's a guy who lives in Colorado, and he invites me to dinner. And he flies from Colorado. We, he courts me for six weeks. We, we just email. And then when he gets to town, he calls me, and that's the first time we talk on the phone. He takes me to dinner at a restaurant with tablecloths, and the chef comes out to talk to me because the chef is a friend of, of his. And it feels like I'm in some weird movie. And I didn't trust my judgment anymore, so I introduced him to you. See, he's a fan, not a player in Alcoholics Anonymous. So I cornered all my AA friends and said, Look, I'm going to bring this guy, and if you see any weird on him, I need you to tell me because i got to get rid of him. And... Um, and he fell in love with you guys. He didn't join the circus, but he was really entertained by it. <laughs> and he said, um, so y'all really don't drink, huh? Because <laughs> it was craziness. Um, I introduced him to my best AA buddy, and, and after we got done with lunch, I called up my AA buddy, and I said, what did you think of him? And he said, oh, he's precious. And I said, how do you know he doesn't talk? Surprise. And... Um, he said, well, because he looks at you like, like we look at you. And Jennifer, we love you. So he gets it. So I married him. And um, if you think God's not paying attention, I waited a long time. I had 14 years of sobriety when I got married. I wanted a husband at one year, and I got a lighter. Um, <laughs> and I don't even smoke anymore. So... I got married at 14 years, and um, but God was just getting a chef ready for me. 
And um, we met and we got married and, and we are pals and we have this wonderful relationship. But two people who have little kid ideas about money got married and we waited for an adult to show up. Oops. And uh, things were going so well, I quit working. <laughs> and uh, he was working some. And then he wasn't working some. And then he was working some. And last year he wasn't working. I was at a conference speaking. He lost his job that weekend. I lost my telephone. It was kind of a crazy time. Um, and he looked for a job, and he looked for a job, and he looked for a job, and I didn't know what to do because I didn't have a job, and I couldn't figure out how to get one. I really, I hadn't worked in so long, I didn't even know where to start. And um, we ran out of money. And uh, we had to move in with my mom. We, we got to move in with my mom. which was really, really hard. My dad has gone into assisted living. He has um, dementia. He's no longer mobile, and uh, he's, he's bl blind, and so he required some extra care. And, and my mom was living by herself, and she'd been asking us to move in for a long time, but I couldn't hear her because it wasn't what I wanted. And so I decided, we decided, because we had no other choice, let's not pretend it was virtue, um, we decided to move in with mom, which meant that we got rid of 80% of our stuff. We had what I call a reverse garage sale, um, which is we put crap on the corner and hoped people took it. And uh, they did. I'll just tell you, if you put free on a box, it will disappear. And um, we called them the raccoons. We would set things out on the curb, and at night, the raccoons would come and take it. And I'd lived in that house for 10 years, and I didn't know any of my neighbors until three weeks before I moved out. Because people stopped by to say, you see this corningware dish that I got on your corner? My mom had these, and she was missing one piece. And I found it out on your corner for free. I want to thank you so much for the blessing you gave my mom. And this kept happening over and over and over again. And, and this really amazing thing began to happen. And we're moving in with my mom, and I discover I thought she was just going to, like, get rid of this stuff she hadn't touched for 10 years. Turns out we got a little hoarding action going on. And, um, and I come face to face with my mom's pain. And I have to learn how to help her. And, um, and there's a whole other level of surrender because I don't want to do more harm by um, making her get rid of something she's not ready to get rid of. And so I kind of um, have to work on how to help her because she had just sort of locked some things up because she wasn't ready to deal with the feelings. And what I found out was that when we moved in with her, it was safe for her to feel them. And she would come downstairs and say, I cry now. I didn't used to cry. And I think that's probably a good thing. And I, I, I believe that was true because... Um, because I've been in AA, and sometimes crying is a real necessary part of healing. As we were moving, I watched this man that I am in love with be as graceful as anyone I have ever seen in my life, but I'm really worried for him because when he lost this job, it really wasn't fair. It really, I, I'll be the first one to say, he's not perfect. He's pretty perfect for me. He's not perfect, but he really kind of got a, the short end of the stick on this last deal. And someone really sort of committed to making sure he didn't work because they reached out to other people in town and told them not to interview him. And it was really painful and really hard to watch this man that I love suffer. And we have these turtles. They're our babies. I know, we're nerds. And um, they're our recovery babies. I have Jay Walker and Serenity. 
And, um, and Will, self-will run wide, except all he does is just sort of lay there spreading.